0: Welcome to Audio Walking Adventures, for short, AWA, although this may cause some confusion with the acronym for American Wrestling Association, which this is definitely not. What this podcast is, is a personal immersive podcast adventure, shying away from the title of a tour, as it's a journey that's not just stating facts. These journeys will be of inhabited areas, and can be followed in a walk or listened to at home. The adventures shall use credible sources, and where possible, ask for aid of historians. The beauty and hindrance of towns is facts and places will change in time, so please check the time code of each episode before fully trusting my guidance. Today's audio walking adventure shall be my university hometown of Bournemouth. It shall be roughly 53 minutes walking time, covering the total of 2.8 miles across the centre of Bournemouth. Bournemouth is the largest town on the south coast. Interestingly, not a city because it has no cathedral. This town regularly scores highly in Best Places to Live surveys. The oranges of the town is that during the Tudor period, the area was used as a hunting estate, Stormfield Chase, but by the late 18th century, only a few small parts of it were maintained by the Christchurch Enclosures Act of 1802. In 1809, the Arm Public House appeared on the heath, A town beginning with a pub is always a good start. A few years later, in 1812, the first resident's retired army officer, Lewis Trengwell and his wife, moved into their new home, built on land he had purchased from Sir George Iveshan Tapps. Trengwell began developing his land for holiday letting by building a series of sea villas. So after my in-depth introduction, let's begin our adventure. Our first location is the train station. The route can be followed on the Google Maps link that is in the description, so please look at it if you're finding my walking directions too vague. The train station was created in 1885 and has great connections to Southampton, London and Manchester. In 1980, Bournemouth was one of the first areas outside a Major City to get its own independent radio station, 2CRFM. Broadcast from near Bournemouth Railway Station. Its name, meaning Two Counties Radio, is derived from the fact that its broadcast area includes parts of the counties of Dorset and Hampshire. More interestingly, the train station is the start of many adventures, although some coming to an unfortunate end. Although we aren't known for murders, the train station is the beginning of Irene Walker's murder, one of Bournemouth's most shocking murders. Not to worry though, it occurred in 1922 a young woman from London who lived with her family in Streatham. She had been buying the Daily Echo to look for more suitable jobs in Bournemouth. On December 22nd, she answered an advertisement in the Morning Post and was delighted with an instant offer of a position. She received a telegram telling her to go to the train from London and a car would meet her in Bournemouth Central Station. She wired an acknowledgement to the address given and rushed to catch the 4.30 train. Soon after she left, her telegram was returned to address unknown. But it was too late. She arrived and a car and driver duly picked her up. However, instead of driving her towards Boscombe, Irene was taken to the undeveloped backwaters of Southbourne. The car stopped along Ilford Lane. A struggle ensued and Irene was hit several times about the head with a hammer. She was dragged into a field and left to die. Apart from the distinctive tyre marks, there were no clues. The original telegram sparked a search for the sender and inquiries revealed the one sent to Irene was one of several sent over the course of a week. The person handing in the messages at the post office had distinct handwriting and was a bad speller. The police interviewed all the drivers and owners of cars in Bournemouth, but nothing suspicious was found. One of those questions was Thomas Alloway, who drove the Mercedes for Miss Sutton, a newcomer to the district. There was nothing to link him with the murder. He was able to satisfy the police by changing his handwriting, but his name kept coming up during inquiries. After sealing some checks from his employer, Alloway ran away from Bournemouth. Inspector Garrett used the mine charge as an excuse to capture him and question him more fully. At several identity parades, Alloway was picked out. The news agent who sold the morning post remembered him. Always, his alibis kept falling apart. His spelling and writing style exactly matched those found in the telegraph slip. Collectively, the evidence was overwhelmingly sufficient to have Alloway tried and found guilty of murder. Our next location is Langtree Manor Hotel, which is 10 minutes away. And this is the most confusing directions of our adventure, so bear with me and please refer to the map for guidance. Basing towards Asda and turning left past the gym towards the road. Once reaching Hollandhurst Road, head right towards the roundabout. On the roundabout, turn left, following the road, take the first right, travelling till you reach another roundabout. Taking the third exit, on this roundabout, then go along Derby Road, the Manor Hotel can be seen. Although this podcast is not going to be only about spooky murders and ghosts, our next stop is Langtree Manor, one of the town's most haunted buildings, built by Edward VII for his mistress, Lily Langtree. Lily and Edward were the only residents at the hotel for many years, so it is perhaps fitting that Lily is still often seen around the hotel by both guests and staff in the form of a grey shadow. The hotel was recently stayed in by a team of paranormal investigators with some surprising results. The team were locked into one of the hotel's bedrooms for over seven hours and they experienced a number of paranormal going on including a pendant that moved on request in a number of different directions, loud footsteps, voices and cold areas in the room that were previously warm. Items in the hotel room were also moved and small lights were seen. Lily designed the vast majority of the hotel, and this is evident in the choice of colours throughout the building. Apparently she wasn't a fan of dark wood, so all the wood in the house was painted with white enamel. Their designs are seen throughout the hotel, with outside walls of the king's room bearing the instructions, "Dulce DOMU, meaning sweet home. However, life wasn't always smooth sailing for the pair. Lily had a daughter named Janine Mary, who was originally brought up as her niece. Janine Mary was reportedly fathered by Prince Louise of Battenberg, not by King Edward. Janine was only told who her father was on the eve before her wedding day. Bournemouth is said to be home to younger ghosts, including the ghost of a soldier wearing a Second World War uniform and a horse, which both haunt the town hall. Our next location is Lansdowne Campus, Bournemouth University. Continue travelling along Derby Road, the opposite way to which you first travelled. When you see the travelodge, take the left, travelling along the scenic road until you reach a roundabout. Go over the roundabout and the buildings surrounding you are partly Lansdowne campus. Bournemouth is home to two universities, AUB and Bournemouth. Bournemouth campus being partly at Lansdowne. Although this is not a gorgeous building, it is a section of the site of a great university. University origins can be traced to the early 20th century with the foundation of Bournemouth Municipal College. The modern history began in the early 1970s, with the creation of the Bournemouth College of Technology. Our next location is, however now (laughs) a mundane KFC, used to be the site of a very interesting hotel. Please continue along the road and you will come to a roundabout. KFC is, and should be, on your right. Although now a KFC, it was the site of a mass bloodshed in World War II, the town's air raid sirens had sounded 847 times since the outbreak of war, but nothing could prepare Bournemouth for the abject horror of the 23rd of May in 1943. In little more than a minute, Bournemouth fell victim to the bloodiest raid of World War II, hitting the Metropole Hotel, which the site now consists of, the KFC. In its wake, at least 131 people lay dead, the attack was on mostly Allied airmen staying at the hotel. The blast being so massive, the blast being so massive that one person was catapulted in the church bell tower to your left. Their presence only discovered when seagulls flocked towards the dead body. Our next stop is, I promise, the final building stop. It is Hotel Miriama. It can be located by heading over the roundabout on the second left. Continue along the road until you reach another roundabout. Saying roundabout so many times has made me realise how much Bournemouth love roundabouts. Anyway, again take the second left along Grove Road and travel along till you see the Crawler to Brawler Bar. The hotel is on the left before the bar, down a drive, which you don't have to travel down, you can just admire the scenic grounds. The legendary creator of Middle Earth, J.R.R. Tolkien, spent the final parts of his life in Bournemouth, accompanied by his wife, Edith. He'd previously come on holiday to the seaside town every summer for 30 years, always staying in the same room in Hotel Miriamma. He lived in the house of Braxham Chime from the 1960s until his death in 1973. Many other famous people have frequented and come from Bournemouth including Gareth Malone, presenter of the BAFTA award-winning TV series, The Choir. The musically gifted Gareth Malone was educated at Bournemouth School and sang with the symphony chorus of the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. Christian Bale, the Oscar-winning actor and star of The Dark Knight and American Psycho, attended Bournemouth School until the age of 16. And Jane Goodall, world-renowned primatologist and conservationist, grew up in Bournemouth before starting her 45-year study of wild chimpanzees in Stream National Park in Tanzania. Our next stop takes us towards the beach and is the Red Arrows Memorial. If you're still following along, please continue to follow Grove Road. Admiring all the hotels on the way, another thing I've realised Bournemouth have multiplying like rabbits. When you reach the crossroads, take the right, continuing along this path, you should now see the sea in the distance. And when you can't go any further, take the right. Now take the path route and a slight left you should see the memorial. Looking out at the amazing beach view in the distance, to the left is Bournemouth Pier and to the right, Boscombe Pier. In front of you is the Red Arrow Memorial Sculpture. The memorial is for 1st Lieutenant John Egging, 33, of Rutland, who died when his Hawk T-1 aircraft crashed following a display at the 2011 Bournemouth Air Festival. The artwork is 5 metres high, featuring three glass red arrow planes and stainless steel contrails. Each contrail also has 60 coloured glass discs in the red arrow traditional colours of red, white and blue. The one-ton sculpture created by Tim Ward of the Circling the Square was designed by school children from Kinson Primary School in Bournemouth. Our next stop is the Russell Cotts Museum. Although I'm sure the British weather is making you want to tear your clothes off and run into the sea, please refrain from this until we finish finished our adventure. Continue along the path and meet the road again. Travel along the East Overcliff until you see another sea path to the left. Travel along this path and take obligatory photos of the stunning view until you reach the Russell-Cotts Museum. The Russell-Cotts Museum was founded by Sir Merton and Lady Russell-Cotts at the turn of the 20th century. It was purpose-built and continues as a permanent art museum. The Art Journal acknowledged that Mr. Russell-Cotts had devoted considerable time to bringing together probably one of the most notable collections of modern works of art in the extreme south of England. Originally from Staffordshire, Merton, in 1860, he married Annie and they moved to Dublin. Merton struggled with poor health and as a result, the couple moved to Bournemouth in 1876 with their three children. They bought the Bath Hotel on Christmas Day 1876 and later extended and extensively refurbished it. From 1884, the couple travelled extensively, visiting Australasia, America, India and the Near East, Egypt and the Pacific Islands, and Japan, (laughs) collecting artworks and souvenirs. The resulting collections were displayed throughout the hotel's public and private rooms, which gained a reputation for being an art gallery and a museum. Many famous guests stayed at the hotel, including the Prince of Wales, later Edward VII, Oscar Wilde, and actor, Sir Henry Iving. Eventually the collection outgrew the hotel and in 1897, the couple commissioned the unique and eccentric East Cliff Hall. The house now a grade two-listed building reflects Moorish Japanese and French decorative styles alongside contemporary Victorian design. The interiors provide a context for their extensive collections of artifacts, furnishings, sculptures and paintings. Completed in 1901, East Cliff Hall was one of the last Victorian villas to be built in the town. The museum is well worth a visit and a jewel of art history in Bournemouth. Our next stop is Bournemouth Pier, which if you continue along the path you can see in front of you. Please head towards it until you reach a mini square with benches and I'm sure plenty of screaming children and cute dogs. The first pier in Bournemouth consisted of a short wooden jetty that was completed in 1856. Due to an attack by pterodome worm, the wooden piles were removed in favour of a cast iron replacement. In 1866, the pier was made unusable when a T-shaped landing stage was swept away in a gale. At the cost of 2,600, the new Bournemouth pier was opened by Lord Mayor of London on eleventh August 1880. In common with virtually all other piers in the south and east of the country, Bournemouth Pier was substantially demolished by soldiers from the 18 Field Park Company of the Royal Engineers on the 5th of July 1940 as a precaution against German invasion. The pier was repaired and reopened in August 1946. A structural survey of 1976 found major areas of corrosion and a 1.7 million restoration programme was initiated. Interestingly, the pier was used by Marconi, who was arguably the father of wireless and grandfather of radio. He used the pier to test the first radio transmission. On the 7th of December, 1897, the experiments began and he wrote in his diary, We started experiments using either the Solent or the Mayflower, tugs belonging to the South Western Railway Company at Limington. The object being to steam over a triangular course each day and noting the signal strength. To Bournemouth Pier, then on to Swanage Pier with a straight run back to Allen Pier. The first wireless telegram was sent when he established a coastal station at the Needles Hotel, Allen Bay, Isle of Wight, and carried out tests with two steamers, achieving ranges of up to 18 miles. A second station was set up in Midria Hotel, Bournemouth, now the big Centre. Lord Kelvin sent the first paid message from the Isle of Wight to Bournemouth in early 1898. The pier has a number of outdoor activities. My favorite part of the pier is the name carving that people do on the wooden railing, although the defacing isn't advisable. Our penultimate stop is Bournemouth Avery. Please now head towards the Winter Gardens until you see the Terence Cafe listen out for the sound of birds, and head up to the pass towards the aviary. Please be careful of the overconfident squirrels that inhabit the gardens. Bournemouth Avery is a partly hidden outdoor aviary. The noise is so delightful and it always cheers me up. Bournemouth Avery has existed on the Pine Walk in the lower gardens for more than 50 years. The public can visit the aviary at any time of day and any day of the year. The aviary was originally maintained by Bournemouth Council, but it is now run entirely by volunteers. They are currently working with the council and plans to build a new aviary. Most of the birds are rescued or have been born at the aviary. Often, very little is known about the birds, their age or how they've been kept by their previous owners. Some of them have physical problems, such as a broken toe, deformed beak or they can't fly properly. Others have psychological problems such as screeching, biting or feather plucking from years of boredom. Most of these problem birds settle well in relative freedom of the aviary, especially if they find others of the same or similar species. However, the birds will never be completely cured. Polly, the talking wooden parrot, is always collecting donations for the lovely birds. Our final stop is Bournemouth Square. Head to Westover Road where you will see a cinema and suit shop. Head left away from these establishments. Ideally, travel towards the stable restaurant. Head left on the splitting path towards the buses and in front of you is the square. Our final stop is Bournemouth Square. Bournemouth Square is now full of shops and cafes. Casting your mind back to the 1940s, it is where Bournemouth Town was further established. In the 1840s, the fields that later became Bournemouth Square were drained and laid out with shrubberies and walks. Many of these paths, including the Invalid's Walk, remain in the town today, forming part of the Pleasure Gardens, which extend for several miles along Bournemouth. Stem. Pleasure gardens were originally a series of garden walks created in the fields of the owners of Branksome Estate in, in the 1860s. Parliament approved the Bournemouth Improvements Act in 1856. Under the Act, a Board of Commissioners were established to build and organise the expanding infrastructure of the town, such as paving, sewage, drainage, street lighting and street cleaning. In 1880, the town had a population of 17,000 people. But by the 1900s, when railway connections were at their most developed to Bournemouth, the town's population had risen to 60,000. It was also during this period that the town became a favourite location for visiting artists and writers. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you are now ravished after all the walking and listening to me, I would thoroughly recommend Harry Ranson's chip shop on the seafront left left of Bournemouth Pier. Now you've made it this far on our adventure into Bournemouth's past and present, you might as well share it on social media. The next podcast of a new area shall be released in two to three weeks. Hoping you can contain your excitement until then, have a wonderful few weeks.